Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the Sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And in this episode, we're calling the Saga Thing to order. Here, it's here. time to judge the Saga of Thordmanis. Now today we're going to be going through all our usual categories, and that includes Best Bloodshed, Body Count, Nicknames, Notable Witticisms, Outlawry, Thingmen, and Final Ratings. That's I am really interested to see how this one plays out. Me too. You know, this is a fun saga, but it's not without its problems, I'll say. Yeah. I, f- I feel like we may score things pretty close here, but I'm not sure about it. Besides, I'm, I'm really curious to see who you're going to pick for Thingman. You're curious. Yep. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious too, John. I, I still haven't decided. You got a little while to think about it. No, I, I, not really, because we're about to start the judgments. Oh, we are when? Right now. Who? Best Bloodshed. Now, as the title of this category suggests, we are about to look at the most fantastic acts of violence in the saga. I want you to think of this category as a greatest hits of the saga's action scenes. If there was an Oscar for violent displays, John, it would be called Best Bloodshed. And Thord Mess deserves a lot of credit for contributing to the extreme violence of his saga. Yes, he does. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone so busy lopping off limbs and cutting people in half since we did Ale Saga. Mm-hmm. Now, Thord may not be the kind of guy to start a fight, but once it gets going, he really loves to swing that sword around. Yeah, he really does. So much so that I think we need to recognize all the great work done in this saga to perfect a single move. A mm. single contribution to the annals of saga violence. <laughs> And so, Andy, it's time to offer one of our rare Lifetime Achievement Awards. Yes. Not since Gunnar Hamundersen in Njal Saga perfected the Hlidrindi Slam have we seen a saga protagonist so dedicated to a single move. That's right. And so the Saga Thing Academy is pleased to celebrate the work of Thor Thorthorsen in the field of horizontal bisection. <laughs> also known as cutting guys in half above the hips. Yes. Thorth began his work early in the saga, showing both his commitment to his art and his indifference to everything else, when he chopped his own cousin, Hrold Agmundersen, in half during a raid on the hall of King Sigurd Snake. Uh, in his defense, though, Hrold had just killed Thorth's older brother, Clip, so... A mere detail. Mm. After this early showing, Thorth quieted down for a time and perhaps grew somewhat rusty, because it took a false start before he was back in form. In a battle with two brothers, Alvolf and John Glimson, Thor aimed his first chop a bit high, cutting off Alvolf's head in a disappointing <laughs> result. He snapped back, though, cutting John Glimson in half above the hips only moments later. Much better. No one's perfect, and Thor was out of practice there, and the battle with the Glumsons was a difficult one. I remember that whole fight happened inside a trader's booth with everyone fighting for space while swinging wildly. Thor's barely able to crash his way out of there with a dozen men trying to stab at him. Mm-hmm. We should be impressed that he managed to cut one of them in half. <laughs> I love that we have a job where we can say things like that. Yes. Uh, Thor then moves into the most productive part of his career. In the first failed ambush against him, Thor cuts Sigurd the Norwegian in half. In a second ambush, he chops a warrior named Orn in two. He has two more nearby sections once by chopping into an enemy but only getting as far as his chest, and once when he kills Ozer the Gothi in a moment that I'm sure we're going to talk about as a bloodshed candidate all its own. Oh, we definitely are, yes. And this isn't counting all the times that Thorth cuts people apart into unequal pieces. It all just kind of runs together with Thorth. 
Yes, it does. Usually on the ground in slippery puddles. <laughs> but but uh, those beheadings are lesser moments. It's the full bisection that we're counting as Thor's contribution to saga lore. He is not the first to do it, but he's really, really committed to that move. Yes, it is. And it's for that reason that in Thor's honor, we're henceforward calling this the Thorderson Chop. <laughs> the Thorderson Chop, huh? I, I, I thought about calling it cutting them into Thorths, but that would just be confusing. What about a menacing blow? I think that's a, a good one, Ooh, too. a menacing blow. That's nice. A menacing blow. Uh, well, whatever we're going to call it, uh, we'll determine it next time someone gets chopped in half. <laughs> uh, but congratulations, Thorth. Uh But that is, of course, not the actual winner of Best Bloodshed. That's just a mm. lifetime achievement oh, yeah, award. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, right. That's what we in the business refer to as a waste of time. Uh, <laughs> what are the actual candidates? Well, uh, again, the, the, the highlights there were great. Uh, I'm glad we did that. Um, it helps us really get a sense for Thor's passion for carving up the opposition. Um, but that highlight reel of greatest hits only gives us a little taste. I think it's time to look <laughs> at some of Thor's more serious efforts. Okay, where do you want to start? Well, I, I think we should probably start with his killing of Orm, uh, because mm. that's the inciting incident for all of those ambushes. Yep. Uh, remember that Orm had uh, approached Sigrid, Thor's sister, while she was washing clothes one day when Thor was working on his ferry. Yeah. Orn the Creep. Uh, he made Sigrid sit down and then put his head in her lap. He then mm-hmm. puts her hands on his head like he's trying to force her to play with his hair. Uh, yeah, like you said, he's he's a bit of a creep. Uh, and fortunately, Sigrid's maid ran off to find Thorth as soon as Orm showed up. Mm-hmm. And when Thorth comes over the hill and finds Orm with his head in his sister's lap, mm-hmm. he shouts for Orm to stand up and defend himself. Right, Thor doesn't exactly give Orm a ton of time to respond, though. No, no, no. As soon as Orm reaches for his sword, Thorth cuts his right arm off. Then Orm reaches for his sword with his left hand in a, uh, what I have to say is one of the more miraculous recoveries from losing a limb. Uh, but his leg breaks as he turns awkwardly, mm. uh, which is an unfortunate step for Orm. Thor then cuts ah, Orm's I see head what you off. you did there. Get it? Uh, Thor, then, Thor then cuts Orm's head off and leaves him there. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the trouble really gets started for Thor. Right. Yeah. From that moment onward, it's one ambush after another. After another, after another. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's really nothing compared to my next candidate. If you... Wait, wait, you're going again? Sure. Why not? You, you, you mentioned okay. it. Go ahead. Better be good. Yeah, yeah it's good. I, I'm jumping quite a ways ahead uh, to mm-hmm. something that you mentioned in The Greatest Hits, uh, Thor's final encounter with Ozor. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. That, this is a strong contender. Great choice. Yeah. Now, up to this point, Thor had been incredibly patient. He had already been attacked by Ozor twice, and he was kind enough to let him live each time. Right, and that worked with Indridi, remember. Right? He nursed yeah. Indridi back to health and then earned his friendship. Yeah, but that doesn't work with everyone. Mm-hmm. I remember Ozor was just relentless in his pursuit of Thorth, and he promised to be so. Um, so when, when Ozor pops up a third time with a band of men to ambush Thorth, well, well, Thorth's patience finally runs thin. He says, You put a lot into taking my life, Ozor. It wouldn't be a bad thing at all if you had to pay the consequences for that. And after dispatching quite a few of Ozor's men, he finally gets Ozor to himself to attack. Mm-hmm. Ozor chops a chunk out of Thorth's shield... And as he swings with both hands, he exposes his left side. Thor See, that's attacks, a mistake. And his sword bites into Ozor's flesh, under the arm, and straight down the backbone, severing his ribs from the spine. Mm. 
that that was the end of Ozor's final ambush. Yeah. Now, John, we have seen a lot of guys lose a limb in the sagas, and we've seen quite a few guys get cut in half or lose their heads. Yeah. But outside of the Blood Eagle, I don't recall seeing someone have their ribs separated from their spine. And it's it's a great example of the kind of fantastic violence that we're looking for here in Best Bloodshed. Right. Fantastic in the sense of being fantastical. Yeah, it's it's this yes. is fantasy violence. But yes, it, fantasy regardless, violence. it's it's an impressive move. Yeah, yeah, it is. It might strain credulity. As we said, it's a bit of a fantasy violence, but that's what Best Bloodshed's all about. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do, you, what do you got? All right. Uh, I'm nominating a moment from early in the saga. It's actually the very first bit of bloodshed in the entire story. Mm. Right at the beginning, we're introduced to the children of Thor Sr. Three oh, young yeah. men named Eolf, Klup, and Stangrim, a daughter named Sigrid, and their little brother Thor Jr., one big happy family. I guess. I mean, not all that happy, though. Uh, their king, Sigurth Snake, has a bad habit of seducing or assaulting women. And his latest victim is Klup's wife, Olof. Uh, the Thordersons decide that the situation requires vengeance. Yeah. Vengeance against a king. Hmm. Oh, yes. This situation absolutely requires a futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part. <laughs> and they're just the guys to do it. Yeah. Uh, they assault a hall where the king is at a party, and Klup rushes up to the king and buries a sword in his chest by way of his head. Smart. Uh, the description in the saga is that the stroke split him open down to the shoulders, which is about the most brutal-sounding killing I can think of. Yeah. Uh, all hell breaks loose, and Klup ends up being killed a few moments later, but it's a hell of a moment. I mean, even laying aside the cleaving of the head... How often do we see somebody actually assassinate a king in the sagas? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that got to be a strong candidate. We have seen plenty of people who thought it would be a good idea to kill a king of Norway off, but <laughs> not many succeed. So right. uh, a tip of the hat to you, Clip, uh, or both halves of a hat off to you, I guess, depending <laughs> on how it all goes. Uh, all right, what else we got? Well, my... This is going to be my last candidate because I've already given two. Okay. Um, and it's it's noteworthy not so much for the fantastic nature of the violence, but for the shocking aggression with which Skeggy dispatches his enemy. Of course, I am talking about the killing of Thorhall, the cowardly I, farmer. Yeah, that one isn't just shocking. It's brutal. It is. Yeah, this happens after Aeth once again interrupts his father and foster father from killing each other. Poor Skeggy. Aeth would just won't let him get himself killed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not so sure that Skeggy would lose that fight, if I'm being honest. I Maybe. I mean, you know, they do fight later on in the saga, and Thor does seem to have the upper hand when Aeth interrupts them. Seems on the other hand, there's that, other, that second fight where Thor is actually quite injured when Aeth steps in, so maybe. Yeah, yeah Like so I, the way I look at it is the fight wasn't finished, so mm-hmm. it's hard to say. Um, but Aeth's interruption leaves Skeggy enraged, and since he can't kill Thor... He's got to take his anger out on someone. Right. Plus, and this is a recurring theme, he's got Skolfnung out. Right? Yeah. His, his sword, his sort of semi-magical sword. He can't sheathe that sword until it tastes blood. And Aeth has ruined the uh, the blood tasting that he wanted. Yeah. So he uh, he rushes over to Thorhall's farm with Skolfnung in his hand, and he drags Thorhall out of bed. Right now, Thorhall's wife, Olaf, is there too, and she's shocked by Skeggy's sudden appearance and the violence of his handling of Thorhall. Yeah. She may, she's been rough on Thorhall throughout the section of the saga, right? She, she knows what she's married to, but she doesn't want him dead. 
So while Skeggy is dragging Thorhall across the room, Olaf is begging for his life. Yeah, but Skeggy is so angry. He's not listening to that. Mm-hmm. He raises Skolfnung and chops off Thorhall's head. And then, adding insult to fatal injury, he stands over the body and offers one final comment. He says, It is much more fitting to sheathe Skolfnung in your blood than Thor's, because it would be a great loss if he died. But you won't be missed at all. Mm. And that's the end of Thorhall. Again, it's not really on par with the Hlitherendi Slam, but Best Bloodshed isn't always about incredible feats of martial prowess. Right, but we have to highlight the more dramatic examples of violence, too. Yeah, yeah, and this one fits the bill rather nicely, I think. Although I gotta say, I do feel a bit badly for Thorhall. I know. I mean, he's the comic relief. Comic relief isn't supposed to get decapitated. No. That's not how this goes. No, and... Yeah. yeah, and and you remember um, back earlier, just uh, several chapters ago, when when uh, when Thor first arrived, Thorhall prophesies his own death when he says um, he says something like, uh, "I think anyone who offers him help isn't taking good care of their property or their own lives." And and look at him now. I mean, in fairness, though, others who help him are just fine. It's the combination of helping him and being a <laughs> scurrilous coward that gets him killed. I guess so, uh, yeah. Well, we're sorry to lose you, Thorhall. We'll have a, a clown car and a 21 whoopee cushion salute arranged in your honor. <laughs> okay. So uh, what do you think, John? Is that it? Are we ready to crown a winner? Um, I do have just one more candidate. It's it's not going to really? win, but sometimes it's an honor just to be nominated. Sometimes, but maybe maybe this isn't one of those times. Well, I suspect it's not, but what the hell. <laughs> All right. So this is one of the last acts of violence in the saga. It's kind of a coda to the feud between Thorth and Skeggy of Mithrid. Uh, everyone is at Thorth's farm for the wedding feast of Thorth's sister Sigrid and Skeggy's nephew Aspirin. And everyone's having a great time, except for Skeggy, who's sitting at a seat of honor and pouting his way through the evening. Well, pouting makes it sound so childish. I mean, this is his nephew's wedding, and he's sourpussing his way through the wedding reception. You, you don't think that's petty at all? I mean, I didn't say it was inaccurate. It's just childish. Well, that's that's actually fine, because <laughs> Thor thinks childish is exactly the word to describe Skeggy's behavior. So later that night, after Skeggy falls asleep, Thor takes Skeggy's sword, Skolfnung, and draws it. This is the legendary sword, Skolfnung. Yeah, the fussy, legendary sword, Skolfnung. Blade yes. of a thousand rules. And one of those rules is that Skolfnung must taste blood whenever it's drawn, as we said before. Uh, Skeggy's son Aeth tells Thorth that, and so Thorth shrugs, steps outside, and stabs a horse with it. Yeah, it's kind of rough on the horse, who is probably just enjoying a nice yeah. evening. Right. It's it's also an insult to the sword, of course. Uh, and no one should insult Skolfnung, of course. That is, of course, unless that sword is the famous Skeggy's blade. Wow. Wow. You planned, uh, you planned that in advance. Look, the point is that Skolfnung has been fed on horse blood. <laughs> It's an insult to the sword. It's an insult to Skeggy. And the horse is almost certainly annoyed about it, too. Uh, and it's a fittingly petty end to the feud between these two men. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, so uh, that's that is, that's actually an interesting one. So that's not a, an awful one to include. But uh, we now have our candidates. Who's the winner, John? What are you thinking? I've got, I've got kind of two in mind, and I'm going back and forth with them. I've got two in mind as well. Um, I think we have the same, I, too. Could be. I've got um, Ozer. Uh, having yep. his uh, side split open and his ribs removed or ribs uh, pulled off the spine. Me too. Uh, and I've got the assassination of a king. 
I've got the same two. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I'm leaning more towards the assassination of a king. Not only is that a brilliant scene in terms of just the uh, uh, just the sequence of events and the chaos of it, uh, we get these quick deaths in rapid succession. Uh, that's our first of the menacing blows, and uh, mm-hmm. we get the splitting of a of a head. We get the death of a king. Uh, that's that's pretty fantastic. And I have to say, as an opening to a saga, I mean, that really stakes out some ground. Yeah, it does. You know, we've seen, how many times have we seen Norwegians who get themselves in trouble over a feud and have to flee to Iceland? We've never seen this before. No, no. It's, it's a great innovation. Uh, a pretty cool story. One that seems to be, at least from other sources, to be grounded in some sort of history. Yep. does um, appear to be. Yeah. So, with that in mind, I really like mm-hmm. it. And I think it should win Best Bloodshed. Yeah, I'm, I was kind of 50-50, but uh, I, I, can, I can definitely lean that way. And I think, I think that last thing, the fact that we have a reasonable amount of confidence that this is an historical event, this is not just dramatic effect, this is really something that happened. Klup and his brothers invaded the king's hall in front of the king's men and killed him. Yeah. Pretty cool. I said we go for it. All right. I don't know who which person we have to, I guess, to the Thorthersons. Right, They're, the surviving Thorthersons. They they can come up in as memoriam a group. for Clue. <laughs> All right, congratulations. Body, Body count. count. So this is where we establish just how inappropriate for children this saga is. After best bloodshed, <laughs> didn't we? What were we? What were we just doing? But anyway, mean, the answer is uh, you know if you have young children, maybe this isn't the podcast for them. Right. Uh, yeah, it's time to count up all the people who formed small groups of men and tried to kill Thord Menace, and then ended up being chopped into two or more pieces. Yeah, this is usually a chance for the two of us to argue about the corpse count, but uh, mm-hmm. Thord's saga is pretty good about keeping track of the numbers for us. I mean, every battle ends with a tidy count of the dead, so all we really have to do is add them up. Yeah, I mean, well, there was one spot where Thorth claims that 15 men died in the second battle with Ozer the Gothi mm-hmm. uh, in a poem, right after the text tells us the number was 14. Yeah. Uh, now, that, that's small potatoes. We could probably assume that a poet of Thorth's limited talents could easily make a mistake like that. Hmm. hmm. Well, I don't think bad math and bad poetry are the same thing. Um, no. And I'm not good at either. I mean, I'm standing by that correlation since it makes my life easier. Okay. Uh, anyway, once we did all the sweat equity of adding numbers to other numbers, uh, we ended up with a body count of 74. Not bad. It's a pretty short saga. That's not a bad number. 74 is respectable. Uh, how long uh, did we say the saga was again? It is uh, one and three quarter Hravenkills. 1.75. 1.75, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, even though this saga felt pretty violent, uh, 74 deaths over 1.5, 1.75 Hravenkills, that's... Uh, it's not going to be one of our higher body count density measurement scores, actually. No, it's not going to be top five, I don't think. No. It should be about 40, right? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, it's, a, it's about 42.29. Not too bad. Where not does that fall bad. in the rankings? It's not bad. Not bad at all. Um, like you said, it's not top five, but it's respectable. I think it falls somewhere between uh, Flow Manasaga, Flow Manasaga, <laughs> uh, which had a BCDM of 39.69. Mm-hmm. Uh, 69, dude. And uh, Eric Saga. Uh, Eric the Red had a 44.83. Okay, excellent. Respectable, Thor. Very respectable. Not bad at all. Um, hey, we mentioned just a second ago there the uh, uh, that uh, Thor's poetry is not great. And we <laughs> did have one listener uh, wanted some more context on that. And I'm sorry, I don't remember 
the listener's name off the top of my head here. But uh, uh, why why don't we like this? Is the question why don't we like Thor's poetry, John? Um, I would say that Thor's poetry is workmanlike and serviceable. We're not saying it's terrible poetry. Right? I mean, we we've seen bad poetry in the sagas. Remember. Yeah. We made that we we made the decision that Ale is deliberately writing a bad poem with the head price poem as a kind yes. of veiled insult. We've seen bad poetry. This isn't bad. It's just mediocre. Yeah. Uh, it, to it me, does it feels like it's, it's always just really on the nose. He's kind of saying yeah. what he means yeah. most of the time. And I would say his kennings are about on the level of like an Anglo-Saxon kenning, you know, where it's essentially thing equals thing. Yeah. But isn't really getting into the complications of thing that is then represented by other things equals thing. Yeah. Uh, it tends to be, it's very straightforward. It tends to be somewhat repetitive where he'll use the same kenning more than once in the same short poem. Uh, and it tends to be very much, here's the thing, here's the thing I'm talking about. Um, it's not, yeah. it's never super hard to work out what's happening. And that's, frankly, that makes it easier for us, but it's not a sign of a, a high quality poet. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it really comes down to, do you like a lot of obscure allusions and references in your poetry that make it really hard to read and translate? If so, then Thor's not your guy. Right, right. Do you want Do you want Rod McEwen or Ogden Nash? There you go. There you go. Okay. So that's, that's a, you know, a rough answer for you. Um, but okay, what's next, John? Nicknames. Now, this is a section where I like to lay back and let John do all the heavy lifting as he looks into the stories and various interpretations behind Saga Sobriquettes. That's right, everyone. It's time for nicknames. So, what have you got for us this time, John? Well, uh, this is not a saga with a deep store of nicknames for us to peruse. No, I was shocked by Uh, that. We're only looking, I think, once I pulled out all the usual things, right? The names that are based on colors, the names that are based on physical descriptors that aren't very interesting... Uh, the names that are based on location. We're only really left with about half a dozen options this time. So it's just barely possible that this won't take too long. Yeah, right. I wouldn't count on it uh, because the few decent nicknames we do have are quite interesting. For a given value of interesting meaning things I find interesting. Mm. Here we go. Okay. Uh, first we have Sigurth Snake or Slefa. So Sigurth is from the royal lineage of Harald Fairhair. He's a grandson of Fairhair and the son of Eric Bloodaxe and Gunild, the mother of kings. And he's kind of a bastard. Uh, his name can mean serpent or snake, but this isn't connected with uh, Sigurth or Mialga. It's snake in the eye. This Sigurth's name, Slefa, is only figuratively snake. It actually means something like slaver or drool or maybe slime. Hmm. Uh, so if it means snake, it's either playing on the belief that snakes are slimy or it's a reference to snake venom. Uh, but it's also possible to read it as just slavering or drooling with a connotation of something like Sigurth the Ravening or more disparagingly Sigurth Drool Chin. Mm. Uh, either way, it's almost certainly not a compliment and nowhere does it say that anyone shed any tears when Klip buried a sword in his head. No. So it's possible that this was not a complimentary nickname. Uh, I like that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we have a twofer. Meany Thorbjorn and Puny <laughs> Thorbjorn. <laughs> yes. The two guys that were just conveniently introduced into yes. the saga, having given their uh, property <laughs> to uh, both Thor and Skeggy. Yeah. Right. Kind of ridiculous. Uh, having identical sort of biographies, identical situations, identical fates to die each other's hands. Yes. Yes. Uh, so... 
Thorbjorn Vesling and Thorbjorn Almingi. Uh, we'll look at puny Thorbjorn first. His nickname can be translated as small or inconsequential or poor or wretched. Although Klesbjevikvesen is careful to say that it carries a compassionate connotation. It's used in the same way we might call someone a poor wretch in English. Right? Poor wretch. Now, over to Meanie Thorbjorn. Our text gives us the somewhat misleading nickname of Meanie, I have to say, because the name is actually more understood to mean mean in the sense of cheap or stingy. Oh, okay. But miser Thorbjorn, uh, not mean Thorbjorn in the tradition, in the sense that we might have otherwise assumed. So far, so good. One Thorbjorn lives poorly because he's poor and deserving of sympathy. The other lives meanly because he's a skinflint and deserves our contempt. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Miserly or meany Thorbjorn's name, Veslinger, uh, that name can mean miser or, and I love this connotation, miserable. We don't really think about those two words being connected, but they clearly are. Uh, but that's connotative. The best translation of the name is actually wretched or puny, which means <laughs> that meany Thorbjorn's name is actually a synonym for puny Thorbjorn's name. No way. They're the same guy. <laughs> Or rather, they're the same figure, doubled and given to Skeggy and Thorth as followers. They're the, the mystics and the Skeksis, right? One <laughs> being split into two parts with the best and worst connotations of their character made manifest in two twinned forms. Their what, a, fight, what a lovely reference to Dark see? Crystal. Well, well done. Which means their fight and their killing of one another is inevitable. Right? Mm -hmm. They're mirror images of one another, and they're both destroyed by being brought together in a catastrophic collapsing of potentialities. Yeah, that is so beautifully done <laughs> for such minor characters who matter not in the least. What, so what either... Missed, what missed potential? Well, I mean, but either that's genius or our author is just an unoriginal hack and used the same character twice. What do I or, know? Or you don't know what you're talking about. I think that's always worth... You know, I don't the, think we should bring that up. Uh, okay. I think I think it's pretty clear that I've seen the Dark Crystal, so I do know what I'm talking about. Well, that part I think is accurate. Uh, I, sometimes <laughs> I wonder about the uh, the interpretations. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But go ahead. Uh, our next one is a nickname only in the sense that it's a name that is given to someone. Uh, Svithgrim, Thor's mm -hmm. horse. Svithgrim. Uh, I know we don't usually cover animal names in this section, but this saga was so light on nicknames, I figured it was worth bringing up just one of them. Uh, Svithgrim is the horse given to Thor by a neighboring farmer. His name is a merging of two name elements, obviously. Uh, we've talked before about how Grimur is both a real name in Iceland and also the fake name used by people who are traveling incognito. Right? Because the name means mask or hooded. Mm -hmm. uh, so disguised person, basically. Yeah, uh, But given that we're talking about a culture that treated physical difference as a basis for nicknaming, you can see how a baby with a facial skin discoloration from uh, acrocyanosis or infant eczema or a birthmark might end up with a name that means masked one. Mm. Or not. Okay, It may well just be a name for most people, like how my name means God's gracious gift and yours yeah. means manly. Well, we uh, have a... Obviously, our parents didn't know what they were talking about, so <laughs> names might not mean anything <laughs> ah, at all. I see what you did there. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, good one, John. Now, uh, talking about naming an animal for a uh, physical feature, what did I name my dog who has a black mask on his face? There you go. See? Right. See? Now, but let's assume that Thor's horse is called masked on purpose. Right? Okay. I think we can make that assumption, by the way, 
since another use of the word grimur is for a piece of armor that covers a horse's face and neck. Mm-hmm. So I'm going with that. Now, svither, the first part of the name, means singed or burnt or darkened. And we have other evidence for this word being used specifically to describe a burnt face. A svithu is a burnt sheep's head, which Icelanders ate and which we've seen mentioned in the sagas a few times. So svithgrimur means singed face or burnt face, probably indicating a black or dark mask marking the face of Thor's horse. I'm pretty pleased about that one. Yeah. Now, Aspjorn cesspool hog. I know this is a particular mm-hmm. favorite of yours. Vesugalti. The, uh, the bog hog. Now, this is a great nickname, and it's only a shame that it doesn't seem to catch on. Uh, Thor tries hard. He ha- tries to hang that name cesspool hog on Aspjorn twice. Publicly. For, yeah, well, the first time is when he realizes Aspjorn has been ogling his sister Sigrid and making her uncomfortable, but he only says the name that time to his sister with no one else around. A few months later, though, he's wrestling with Aspjorn at the District Winter Games, and he throws Aspjorn down so hard that, the saga tells us, Aspjorn's body went crunch. <laughs> and then he says, Cesspool Hog has fallen. Yeah. It's a good name, but uh, it's pretty much exactly what the translation says. Uh, Vesa is a pool of stagnant water, um, but Thor clearly means to make the name hurt, so cesspool is probably within bounds as a connotation. And Galti means hog. Mm-hmm. So, good name. Uh, and it's pretty much what it says. So, we move on to the big one. Thor of Menace. Mm-hmm. Also known as Thor of Downy Cheeks. Uh-huh. Uh, Thor this fun. So, first of all, we have two different nicknames for him. Thor Hrathu and Thor Meyerkunen. Uh, I'll deal with the second one first, since it's much simpler. This name is given as an insult by Aspjorn during the same wrestling match where Thor calls Aspjorn Cesspulhog. Aspjorn retaliates for that name by throwing Thor to the ground and saying, Down goes Downy Cheeks. You weren't ready to play games with grown-ups, were you? Uh, (laughs) Now, the context there makes it clear that the insult revolves around Thor's supposed immaturity and childishness. But Meyerkunen is actually even more emasculating than that. A more literal translation would be something like maiden cheeks or girly face. <laughs> Ostrin isn't just calling him a kid. He's using feminizing language to unman him. Yeah. It's a, it's a different version of the beardless insult we saw leveled yep. against Njal Thorgerson and Njalsa. Uh, and as we said then, the force of these insults derive largely from the hyper-masculine performativity of this culture. Mm-hmm. But the clear implication is that a man with no beard is no man at all. Okay. Now okay. on to the name Thord Menace. I'm going to tell you in advance, after consulting five or six sources and spending a couple of hours working on this, I have absolutely no definitive opinion about what this nickname is supposed to mean. Okay. So instead, I'm going to explain the several possibilities and then maybe we can come to a decision. Oh no. Now, as a reminder, our author tells us how Thord gets his name. Early in his career, Thord kills Jon and Adolf Glumson in a marketplace brawl and narrowly escapes a crowd of people out to avenge them. He's saved by Skeggy of Midfjord, who then escorts him part of the way home. And before they part, Skeggy says, and this is Katrina Atwood's translation, I think the men of Borgerfjord will remember how your meeting with them went. I'm going to give you a nickname and call you Thord Menace. And Thord replies, I don't dislike the name, but something tells me that this district will rarely be menace-free. Now, 
I'm going to preface this by saying that there's another tradition from the fragmentary version of Thor's saga that we've mentioned a few times that says that Thor actually inherited his nickname from his father, who was also named Thor's Menace. Hmm. So in that case, he'd be Thor's Menace Jr. But since we're doing our version of the saga, the version that is more traditionally read, we'll stick with the premise that Skeggy gives Thor his name. So first we have the translation that Katrina Atwood gives us, uh, Menace, which is a fairly widely accepted interpretation of the name. And it sits well within that moment of naming in the saga when Thor turns the name back on Skeggy. Skeggy calls him Hredu, and Thor replies with Hredu lost. So Hredu less, uh, in other words, right? Lacking in Hredu, lacking in menace. That's probably a safe translation, but Hredu turns out to be a very flexible word. In other contexts, um, or, and with occasional vowel changes, uh, it can mean creature, scarecrow, person, and it's also closely related to orally to words for awful and bull. Mm-hmm. I personally kind of like the idea of Thor's scarecrow as a name, although then we have to assume that Thor's response is a bit of wordplay. He's being called Thor's scarecrow, but he's turning it back and saying, using it as menace or trouble. But there are other possibilities. Zwega, for example, one of our traditional dictionary sources, gives us disquiet or disturbance as a translation. So you might render the name as Thord Trouble or Thord the Disturber. And Thor's response would then become, this district will rarely be disturbance-free. It's not a huge difference. Hmm? What's another word for disturbance or trouble? uh, I understand that. But I would argue that is a more neutral name than menace. Okay. Um, That's fair. Disturbance... Right is less is less meaningful in that case than menace, which sounds more aggressive. Yeah. Gotcha. Now there's backup for this translation as well. Paul Peterson accepts disturbance as a translation of Hredu as one of the nicknames for Holly the poet. Uh, now colloquially, this is pretty close to the American phrase shitster, which is to say troublemaker. Uh, but its connotation here seems to be more about disturbing the peace. Two more options. In other contexts, the name element Hredu can mean afraid or fearful. In this context, that seems unlikely unless it's meant as a quality that Thor causes in others. Uh, Remember that Skeggy gives him the name after saying that the men of Borgafjord won't be able to forget Thor's fearsome ability as a warrior. Uh, That one's a stretch, I admit. And last, we have one that's equally tenuous, but is appealing to me as an option. Elizabeth Ward argues... Remember that Elizabeth Ward is our sort of scholar of record for this saga, right? She's Expert on this the dissertation fragment. that is yeah. quite good. She argues in her dissertation that though, quote, this nickname is written as Hradu, that is H-R-Ash-E-V-U, in some manuscripts, uh, it means roughly there, the one who strikes fear into others, right? Uh, but the more common spelling of the word, Hredu, H-R-E-E-V-U, may well derive from the Anglo-Saxon term hreder. And she cites Cleesby and Vigvesen for this. Hreder in Anglo-Saxon means scrotum. And this would imply, as in modern English usage, that Thor is a ballsy guy. Yeah. I love this one. So Although, sometimes the district might be ballless? Uh, no, but then, here again, we have to go back to assuming that Thor's engaging in wordplay in his response. Yeah. Right, that it's, it's used on him as meaning sort of ballsy or or nervy and he turns it back and say in the other sense of this word trouble okay um another possibility is that we could read it as thor returning a compliment to skeggy right skeggy calls him thor the brass balls basically 
And Ford replies by saying that Skiggy's district will never be lacking in testicular fortitude. Uh, now, incidentally, uh, Ben Fisher, who's working on a thesis which includes discussion of Thor's saga, also wrote in to point to Ward's explanation. So thank you, Ben. Uh, and please let us know when you finish that section of your thesis. I'd love to read it. Mm-hmm. So, Andy, before we get to the awarding of best nickname, what do we think of these various options for Thor's name? And why is Thor the Brass Balls the best one? Um, I think you. Not know, that I'm putting my thumb on the scales at all. I, I think you went down the uh, the rabbit hole there, which is always exciting. Um, and do. And like many times when you go down the rabbit hole, you, you at some point you find yourself so lost down there that you forget what you came down there for. <laughs> um, what, what section are we in now? I forget. And nicknames. Oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah, I think it's Thor Menace. Um, <laughs> so, so but you your know. basis for that is. Well, I read it in the saga that I read. <laughs> That's I mean, not I did, really... Uh, speaking as somebody who spent hours researching this, I'm yeah. going to say that your authority on this is somewhat limited. But uh, to be fair, John, I feel like I just spent hours listening to you talk about it. Oh. And oh, I know oh, all oh. the things that you know now. So, sure. I know. I think, uh, to me, it, it's. I think Menace uh, makes the most sense contextually. Uh, Troublemaker also makes sense mm-hmm. contextually. I think that's mm-hmm. fine, too. Um, the, the others are... Um, Interesting, we'll say. Interesting. Well, thank you. But I'm not buying them. Uh, I will. I will email Elizabeth Ward and let her know. Okay, you do that. Uh, um, in the meantime, we so need to pick a, a good candidate. Um, I don't know. For me, I don't think Thord Menace is the one. Um, well, remember, it's Thord Menace slash Thord Girly Face. Yeah, but I don't count two Downy. Here. I don't count Downy Face, Downy Cheeks, Girly Face as. A nickname. I think that's just a name that he's called. Sticks and stones and all that stuff. No. See now, now be careful here because if you say that, you're going to argue yourself out of being able to argue for cesspool hog, which is also only said by one person in an attempt to insult another. And I know that that's where you're going with this. I'm not. No, I I was going to say no on cesspool hog because of the same thing. It's just mm. an insult, I'm surprised. not a nickname. So it doesn't. To me, it doesn't fit. And which leaves us with next to nothing. I mean, it, it it doesn't, because I would argue that the the meanie Thorbjorn and puny Thorbjorn uh, tandem is actually quite a clever use of nicknames. If you if you if your thoughts about the Skeksis and the Mystics is correct, <laughs> it's brilliant, and they should win as both one and individually. If that makes any sense. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, they can be. They can win as an Ursgex. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you know, uh, to me, the nickname section's really disappointing this time around because oh, the I'm saga so just n- not because of you, <laughs> but because there just aren't really a lot of nicknames mm-hmm. to play with here. Even though you did stretch it out to twenty minutes, even though you promised me you wouldn't. I'm a talented man. Ugh. All right. So my my judgment is that puny. And meanie or puny puny Thorbjorn Thorbjorn right. has to win. <laughs> I, I can live with that. Puny puny Thorbjorn Thorbjorn it is. <laughs> now, now, John, before we go on to the next category, though I really, really want to go to the next category, <laughs> we did have a question from the rune sack that we never really got to and we decided we might tackle as part of the nickname category. Oh, it's yes. a nickname thing. 
Yeah, this is from Stephanie, right? Yeah, yeah. Stephanie, um, she's written in before, um, but this is another good question. Stephanie writes, uh, do people's nicknames ever change over the course of a saga? Uh, All the love interests are someone the fair, but uh, what happens when they grow old? Like referring to an 80-year-old lady as long legs might just be a little bit awkward. (laughs) What happens to all the beard and hair color based names if a guy goes gray? Uh, Mm. Like you, John. Uh, I assume (laughs) someone called the old or the white uh, might not have been called that in their youth. Uh, So, John, were you uh, John the White when you were young? Um, This is actually entirely true. As a teenager, I was called uh, Grandpa by my friends. Uh, (laughs) That's just because you've always acted like an old man. That's exactly right. Uh, So, yes. So, in fact, in my case, I'm a bad example because my nickname has only gotten more appropriate with age. (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks for getting in touch, Stephanie. The short answer to your question is that, yes, people's names can change over the course of a saga or over the course of their lives. Yeah, that's true in the literature and in the more historical documents as well. Yeah, and some of the reasons are exactly what Stephanie has suggested. A person's name changes due to age or to circumstance. What's more common in sagas, though, is for a person to be known by more than one nickname due to different contexts or because of enemies seeking to saddle a person with an undesirable name. Yeah. We just saw an example of this in Thor's saga, when Asbjorn calls Thor downy cheeks or girly face as an insult, and then Skeggy names him Menace or Troublemaker, right? the name that actually mm-hmm. sticks with him and that he says he likes. Yeah, and, and Stephanie references Holgerth Longlegs in Njall's sagas, and that's a, that's a sort of example there, uh, because remember oh. in the beginning... Her uncle Hrut labels her as having thieves' eyes when she's a child. Mm-hmm. Um, that never formally rises to the level of nickname, though. So, right, sure. You know, yeah. but it's again, she's called two different things. Right. And we can see a really clear example of this with uh, Einar Helgeson, uh, who we met in the final chapters of Ale Saga. We know that Einar was a uh, historical poet, but the sources disagree about his nickname. In Ale Saga, he's called Skalaglam, a uh, bowl rattler, but in other sources, he's also called Skaldmeyer. Uh, Maiden Shield. He's only ever called Skalaglam in Ale Saga, though, uh, which points to another point to keep in mind. Sometimes the name we know a figure by in a saga may not be the only name their real-life counterpart carried in his or her lifetime. It's just the one that ultimately stuck or that overwrote previous names or that they were known by in their later years. Yeah, so it's always possible that a nickname has obscured a previous name element that's now lost to us. Right. I mean, a different version of this would be in a, when a saga figure is introduced to us with a nickname that in the narrative hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Um, take the example of um, uh, somebody like Thorsten Bolsleg, right, in the start of his story. Uh, the narrative doesn't include him gaining that name until near the end of the story, right, until the end of his thoughter. Uh, so to use a more modern term, a nickname can be retconned so that it's used for the figure throughout their life. Sure. Yeah. Although we're slightly wandering off on the point of Stephanie's question. Uh Okay, uh, sure. Well, then let's return to people who definitely have more than one name in a single saga. Andy, you collected Bersi from Cormac Saga as your thingman, right? Uh, Yes, yes. Oh, and I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, Bersi's Mm -hmm. called uh, Bersi the Dueler for most of the saga. But later in his life, he's called Blirai Bersi in reference to his old age and his loss of vision. Yeah, and technically he's given three nicknames because Cormac calls him Arse Bercy. Mm. Uh, But that's just a schoolyard taunt from an enemy. We'd have to debate whether it counts as a nickname or not. It doesn't. 
Um, it doesn't. <laughs> um, but I, you know, uh, I resent the slandering of my Thingman's good name. I don't appreciate that uh-huh. kind of thing. You you may not be unbiased here. Uh, and there are some sneakier multi-nickname figures like Thorolf Mosterbeard from Erbidja Saga. And obviously, Mosterbeard is a nickname. It means something like Moster Island Man or the Beard of Moster. Mm-hmm. But Thorolf's given name contains a nickname as well. Uh, we're told in the saga that his actual name is Hrolf. His dedication to Thor is so complete that everyone starts calling him Thor Hrolf. And that eventually portmanteaus into Thorolf. Uh, then there's possibly the most famous example of all, the semi-legendary king Harold Fairhair, who begins his career as Harold Tanglelocks, yeah. but gets a new name after completing his conquest of Norway. That's a great example. And of course, he's also known in several sagas as Harold Doffrey's foster son, due to his fosterage in the court of Doffrey, the king under the mountain. Uh, now, we can keep going with this, but again, it's it's not especially common, but nicknames can change within a saga or across the saga corpus. And Stephanie, if you're really interested in this, I recommend tracking down a copy of Paul Peterson's doctoral dissertation from 2015, Old Norse Nicknames. Uh, obviously, it's a trove of information about nicknames from the title, uh, but in his second chapter, he partially reproduces in English a list of saga figures with multiple nicknames from a 1907 text by Finner Johnson. And incidentally, according to Finner, the record is five attested nicknames for one person, shared by Magnus Barefoot and Roy the Wealthy. Mm. Stephanie, I hope that answers your question. Thanks for writing in. All right. And uh, with that, I think we're finally done with nicknames. You want to get back to judging <laughs> this saga? Why don't we? All right. Although I feel like you're already judging me. Uh, More than a little bit. (laughs) Notable Notable witticisms. Ah, yes. Witticisms. Our chance to celebrate the saga writer's art. The attaboy for the saga man's aphorisms. The bon travail for the author's bon mot. The prize for the highs of the prose with the prose. It's time for notable witticisms. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to follow nonsense like that. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you go first, John? Very well, I shall. Uh, we're going to need to be quick with these, though, because uh, I don't oh. know. Somebody took a long time with nicknames. Uh, and <laughs> we really can say this is really where the author shines. So we got a lot to choose from. Um, we do. I'm going to need a little bit of help from you reading this first one, Andy. Uh, my first candidate right. comes fairly early in our story when Thor has taken a job building a ferry to cross a particularly difficult river. Now, as he works one day, he sees a man called Thorkel of Sandar, uh, preparing to take his wife and his foster son, Eidskegjason, across the river in a small boat. And he, and, uh, he uh, 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 Thor, calls out to warn Thorkel, the river is impassable, man. And uh, Thorkel calls back, uh, hey, you look after your building and I'll worry about my journey, okay? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that Thorkel? Uh, I think so. Uh, all right, well, the, but the problem is there's a reason why Thor is building a ferry at this spot. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thorkel's boat is caught by the current almost immediately and smashed into an ice flow, overturning and throwing all three people into the frigid water. And as they cling to their capsized boat and float away, Thorkel calls out for help. And Thor glances up and says, I'll look after my building and you worry about your journey. Yes, <laughs> I really enjoy that one. This author knows how to set up a situation for its comic potential. He's yeah. great. And we should also say that Thor does rescue all three of them. He just can't oh, resist getting in that dig first. No, no. His brother tells him to go do it. Remember? Yeah, but he does it. Yeah, but By don't the make way, it sound like he just jumped in the water. Yeah. Well, but Steinberg was there and he didn't jump in. 
Well, he doesn't have the ability. He's <laughs> oh, like, Thor, you're okay. a superhero, so you got to yeah. go do this. And he's like, all right, people will be, they'll they'll think I'm cool if I do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, my first candidate is a great example of what I think of as late settlement period Icelandic romanticism coming up against the harsh realities of actual Icelandic life. Mm. Uh, it comes from the scene where Asbjorn approaches Skeggy of Midfjord about winning the hand of Sigrid, the sister of Thor of Menace. Now, Skeggy urges Asbjorn against pursuing her, but Asbjorn is adamant that Sigrid has captured his heart, and he insists that he won't settle for any other woman. Now, Skeggy reminds Asbjorn that Sigrid's brothers are fierce and violent men who mm-hmm. killed Sigurd's snake, the son of King Eric Bloodaxe. Um, and then, not satisfied with Skeggy's rationale, Asbjorn says, I thought I would be my own master in this country. Skeggy, ever the pragmatist, says, We'll see just how independent you are by the time they've finished with you if you take too many liberties with them. (laughs) Now, John, this may not be a knee slapper, but it's a smart exchange crafted by the author. Mm -hmm. It's a rare, overt nod to the Icelandic spirit of independence that the sagas are so famous for. And in this case, that romantic ideal means very little in the face of reality. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure this line has what it takes to win, but it's definitely worthy of the nomination. I like that one a lot. It it really it does speak to that distinction between the uh, the dream, right? The kind of libertarian dream of Iceland and the reality of being on the island with other people. Yeah. Uh, So my next candidate is another one that can be briefly told. Uh, It's easy to forget after two episodes of Skeggy's entire family trying to kill Thorth. But there was a time when the two of them were almost friends. Sure. Yes. This is after uh, Skeggy saves Thor from the angry mob after Thor kills Jon and Aldolf Glumson, right? Right. And as part of their newfound peace, Thor agrees to the marriage of his sister Sigrid to Skeggy's nephew Asbjorn. But Asbjorn goes away on a trip, and while he's gone, his horrific brother Orm sees Sigrid and decides he should marry her instead, because Orm Mm -hmm. is kind of terrible. Yeah, he's a really awful person. He is the worst. I mean, we might be uh, tipping our hand here about outlawry, but... Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't like Orm. Uh, anyway, uh, Orm gives proof of just how awful he is when Uncle Skeggy tells him to stop hitting on his future sister-in-law. Uh, Orm responds with, I don't care if she is betrothed to him. There'll be trouble in the neighborhood if you don't ask her for me, because I'll seduce her. Her brothers will try to put a stop to it, but I don't care. You'll have to get involved then. And Skeggy, who's not at all impressed with this jumped-up blowhard, says, Yeah, no, uh, Sigrid won't be seduced by you, and it's it's pretty cocky to think you could get her in such a dishonorable way. You'll only get disgrace from this, because Thorth tipped over a much heavier cartload than this when he and his brothers killed King Sigurd Snake. A much heavier cartload. Yeah. Now, I, I take that as a way of saying that Orm's full of crap, and that Thor and company survived a much bigger crap storm when they kicked over a big cartload of it by killing Sigurd Snake. A shit storm is coming, Randy. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't get that. Um, but anyway, uh, we did say earlier that regicides are few and far between in the sagas, mm-hmm. and um, I, I mean, I kind of think you're reading a bit too much into the cartload metaphor. I don't know that it has to be a, a cart of duty. <laughs> maybe maybe I just watched uh, Back to the Future before I read this. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, Andy, under this context, what else do you imagine this could be a heavier cartload of exactly? It's clearly a way of saying trouble or difficulty. And yes. if I'm reaching for a metaphor for that that involves a cartload of something, 
It's not going to be muffins. Well, muffins, good muffins aren't dense, John. Maybe <laughs> scrap muffins. Sure. So uh, uh, you're, you're going with a cartload of crap. Yep. That's what. Uh, yep. Okay. Hey, I don't write the metaphors. I just interpret them. So that's that. All right. Cartload of horse apples. What do you got? All right. Well, my second nominee comes. Uh, uh, it's going to be quick, but it's a great example of the kind of uh, sharp wit that Thorth has and uh, the brilliance of this saga author for clever exchanges between characters. He's really good. This is a good writer mm-hmm. with some things. Uh, this one, uh, it, it's from the scene where Indrithi ambushes Thorth for slaying Orm. Uh, and as Indrithi approaches, he sarcastically asks Thorth where Orm might be. Thorth quickly replies that Orm had gotten himself a plot of land in Midfjord. <laughs> now, right after this playful exchange, Indrithi and his men attack Thorth. And I, I just, I love the idea of Orm's grave now being a plot of land he's so invested in that mm-hmm. he's neglecting his other duties. <laughs> it's a clever line. It's one of those classic moments you might see in modern action films where the uh, protagonist gets to show a bit of wit before he's attacked by the bad guys. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's just one of many noteworthy witticisms uh, in this saga. Uh, but yep. uh, go ahead. What's your next one? Yeah, it's it's true that we actually had to reject a bunch of things that almost certainly would have been nominated in another saga. I mean, this author oh, really yeah. does have a flair for this kind of thing. And I do like that one. I, it's a good one. It's, it's a version of that apocryphal response that King Harold Goblinson supposedly gave to uh, Harold Hardrada's request uh, when the Viking king requests a tribute of land in exchange for peace. Yeah. Uh, and Goblinson yes. is supposed to have responded, I can offer Harold six feet of English earth. Maybe a bit more since he's a tall man. Now, again, he never said it, but it's a good line anyway. It's a great line. Well, in fairness, Thor never said this either. uh, So they're they're probably even, but they're both great lines. Fair. All right. Um, I've got one more. Uh, My last candidate is from that interminable middle part of the saga when Thor has to survive attack after attack from Orm's kinsmen and friends. As you said at the time, it's a lot of fuss for a guy who was kind of an ass. Just kind of? Just trying to avoid a suit for slander. Anyway, uh, uh, most dead. of the attacks are spearheaded by Orm's cousin, Ozer the Gothi, who keeps gathering small groups of men and trying to kill Thorth, usually by catching him unawares on the road. But Ozer is just really, really bad at sneak attacks, and he and his men keep either getting spotted or jumping out of hiding too early and giving <laughs> Thorth plenty of time to get his defenses up. <laughs> And to uh, to be clear, it's never suggested that this is out of a concern for honor. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, Ozer just isn't much good at concealment. Uh, now, we as readers eventually got tired of the endless repetitions of these surprise attack motif. And at this point in the saga, it actually seems like Thorth kind of agreed with us. Because the third yes. time he's quote unquote surprised by Ozer's men jumping out of hiding, Thorth just sighs and says, So, you haven't given up on an ambushing me. It's a dry and resigned kind of humor, and it resonated yeah. with how we were feeling when we reached that point in the saga. And that, to me, is what a good line of writing does. It resonates with the reader's experience of the text. So I think it's worth considering on those merits. What else we got? Okay. Well, I've got uh, I've got two more, if that's okay. Oh. Um, again, there's a lot of good ones in here. Um, now, the first one, it comes from a surprising candidate. It's, it's one of the villains of our saga, uh, if this saga really has any villains. It comes from Ozur's third ambush on Thorth. Now, leading up to this moment, there's been a lot of tension building between Thorhall and his wife Olaf about whether or not Thorhall was man enough to really fight alongside Thorth. 
And when Thorhall suddenly finds himself surrounded by Ozor's men, well, he doesn't uh, take out his sword and fight. He he cowers by the wall, um, <laughs> and he quickly reveals exactly where Thorth has gone. I want to say that we we did establish that Thorhall is probably not armed uh, in this. Yeah, scene. he's probably so, not armed. Yeah, well, to he, be to be fair to the man, um, you know, he's still a coward, but he's a coward to be fair without a weapon. But uh, yeah, he he proves himself to be a coward who gives in very very quickly yeah. now recognizing that Thorhall is the kind of coward that will give up his quote-unquote best friend very, very quickly, Ozor says, It's bad to have a slave for your best friend. <laughs> and then he bonks Thorhall on the head, six-fingered man style, and leaves <laughs> Thorhall lying there unconscious. Oh, it's been a while since we've had a good uh, good Princess Pride reference. Well done. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, so I, I, I've saved the best for last, at least the best in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in the episode uh, that this was my favorite line, and that hasn't really changed since then, though I really like some of the ones that I've brought to the table here. It's Skeggy's brilliant question for Thor in Chapter 10 of the saga. After riding in secret from Reykjavik to Thorhall's farm, he boldly knocks on the door and says he's looking for Thord menace. And when the man at the door asks what he wants with Thor, Skeggy says... Mm, ask him whether he would rather suffer Skolfnung's blows indoors or out. <laughs> and if that isn't a strong contender for noble witticism, then I don't understand this category anymore. What do you think, John? I think it's debatable whether you ever understood what this category was for. <laughs> but <laughs> I thought it was about witty lines in the saga that we like. Um, I... <clears throat> this is really... I mean, this this author, this really is this author's strength. Yeah, um, there's there's a number of options here that I really like. Uh, you look after your building, and I'll worry about my journey. Versus so good. Versus I'll worry about you worry. I'll worry about my my building, and you worry about your journey. Is just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I what really the author like does that. so well, he sets up situations. Yes. So the lines don't like. So a lot of times the line is just said, right? And it's it's the, a witty line by a character. But right. this author sets up whole situations that the line fits into so neatly. Mm-hmm. Yes, that exactly. It, it, it's 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 brilliant, and it's that's well my only uh, my only resistance to ask him who would rather suffer Scofflin's blows, because there's no lead up or context for that. It's just a good line. Yeah, but it doesn't have that same that same kind of cleverness of writing that it so it isn't set up as well as some of the other lines. Mm-hmm. Um, it does take into consideration the the tension that exists between them, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. That line can stand on its own. It's but just the, a cool threat. That uh, that Orm has bought himself a little place on Midfurness is is such a great line because it's such a clever response to the question, "Where is Orm?" Yeah, where? Uh, you know, that, uh, or you know, I'll worry about my building and you look after your journey. Is a great line yeah. because it's been set up by the sort of chiasmus of, of yeah. Thor. Of, uh, the the of snark there is just yes. so strong. Yes. Uh, that, yeah, I, mean, I almost want to give it to one of the ones that's sort of well positioned in the text. I think, yeah. Even though I acknowledge here. that Skofnung's blows is probably objectively the funniest individual line. I don't know if it's funny, but it's strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but but you're making a great point there. Um, I think the context, there's a brilliance in some of the other lines um, that we really need to consider. So I'm willing to concede uh, that it won't be Skolfnung's Blows, which surprises me, <laughs> given how I set myself up for that but it's one. it's so but, good. It is yeah. so good. I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. say it. I'm yeah. just saying that it's... I just think it's it's... What this author does so well is not served by that line. 
Yeah. Well, then, I mean, I, as much as I like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, it's got it. So when we get to uh, the quarter court, if that ever happens mm-hmm. again, um, we need a line that stands without lots of explanation, too. So that that's why that's I don't true. think it should be. That's true. I don't think it should be. I'll look after my building and you look after that, right. that one. Right. You need too much of a story right. to understand that one. Um, in that case, though, the bought himself a little place on Midfjordness is still a pretty good line. Yeah. Yeah, um, it is. But I, I, I mean, I'll, I will accept Skofnung's blows. Uh, I don't think it's a bad line. I think it's a great line. You know, I don't yeah. think it shows off what this author does best, but it's a good line on its own. And I like your uh, argument I, that at the quarter court, it's gonna, it, it'll perform strongly. At the quarter court, I, if we're going for like positioning someone for the quarter court, it's Skofnung's mm-hmm. blows. If we're going uh, for what's the wittiest line of this one, then then maybe you know bought himself a plot of land. <laughs> so this I is mean, hard. I'm going to leave it to you because I like both of these, um, and I'll be happy either way. So you know, what's frustrating about this is this, this is going to be going to be somebody listening to this is going to be very angry at me, no matter what I say at this point. Uh, yeah, so, I think uh, it'll be okay. That's fine. I uh, I've learned to live with the contempt of the audience. Uh, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I. You know what? Uh, as a gesture to you, because you you went so hard on this line during the the recording of the episodes, uh, mm. I will I will accept Skofnung's blows uh, because wow. I know it was near and dear to your heart when we were recording the episode. Woo! Uh, I like it. I like it. I think it's. I think we're gonna be glad we did that when we get to the quarter court. I I think you're probably right. I think it's a good one. Um. I would also say I would like to I would like to at least tip my hat to the author of this saga for yep. what was just page after page of great lines. <laughs> Surprising well number of really good lines. Yeah. I've been reading yeah. sagas for a while. It's it's not that common for me to start to just like burst out laughing when I'm reading and <laughs> exactly, it happened yeah. multiple times with this saga. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Then we got our winner and we can move on. Mm-hmm. Oh, now, in this section, John and I review the saga's various antagonists, explore their character and motivations, and then outlaw one of them for their crimes. More egregious crimes earn a sentence of full outlawry, which comes with a permanent ban, and less egregious crimes earn a more temporary sentence of lesser outlawry with only a three-year ban. Uh, but here's, here's the problem. Thor's mm-hmm. saga is pretty tightly focused on Thor's feud with Skeggy, resulting from the slaying of Orn. Now, outside of Orm, who's, I guess, the real antagonist here, uh, even though he's in the saga for only a chapter or two, who's Mm -hmm. really worthy of outlawry? Uh, Look, I think we're both in agreement that Orm is a strong candidate. Uh, But justice demands that we also consider his cousin, the bumbling ambusher, Ozer the Gothi. Mm, Okay. I mean, he's definitely a guy we don't like. So go ahead. (laughs) Make your case. I see. Uh, so the singular we, then, when I said we make the case. Uh, okay, uh, so Ozur is responsible for not one, not two, but three unsuccessful attempts to kill Thor and Venice. Mm-hmm. He does well, it so a- often that his target is just sighing at him about it after a while. Yeah, no, that just makes him incompetent. Incompetence <laughs> isn't illegal. Well, thank God. <laughs> no, uh, sure, uh, but those, those attacks do come with a price. The three ambushes together cost a total of 35 lives. 
Mm-hmm. And most of those are Ozer's own supporters, but not all of them. He does also kill some people uh, among Thor's supporters. He's responsible for the deaths of nearly three dozen men, which is, let me check here, uh, approximately, oh wait, let's see, that's 35 more men than Orm, who never kills anyone. Mm. Now, Orm's a huge jerk, but there's no actual blood in his ledger except for his own. Mm. But John... Orm's such a jerk. <laughs> and besides, if Osir's guilty of the deaths that happens during his attacks on Thorth, well, doesn't Orm bear some responsibility as the guy who sets all this into, into action, into motion? Mm, no, I don't think so. Um, he doesn't care about the consequences of his actions. That's true. But he's also not actively recruiting waves of men to go and get themselves killed trying to assassinate Thorth Menace. That blood's on Osir's hands, not Orm's. All right. Well, if you're done, then I think I'm not done. Uh, There's another Mm. issue here, which is that we actually have a legal opinion that seems to treat Ozer as a worse offender than Orm. Oh, really? When Aeth makes his settlement judgment to end the feud between Thorth and the kinsmen of Orm, he awards two hundreds for Orm and the same price for Ozer, who's a man of much higher rank. And he explicitly says a third hundred will be forfeited because of Ozer's plots against Thorth, and no compensation will be paid for any of Ozer's men because of their attacks on Thorth. Mm-hmm. So Aeth, who's the closest thing we have to a legal authority in this saga, seems pretty clear that Ozer's behaviors are an offense, right? uh, and that they forfeit some of his legal compensation, while Orm's death should be redeemed by the full compensation package due to his rank. Mm-hmm. I mean... I'm on board with the idea that Orm sucks, but Ozer <laughs> might be the greater offender in law. I mean, that, that's that's all true. And you make a great case for Ozer, but let's not forget just how much we hate Orm, John. <laughs> he shows sorry, up is this in the We hate people so- uh, uh, part <laughs> of the category now? Yes, yeah. Well, in this saga, yes. You remember, sure. he shows up in Iceland. He starts mm-hmm. chasing after his brother's intended, mm-hmm. completely disregarding their brotherly bond, and the advice of his uncle Skaggy. Mm-hmm. Then, when he doesn't get his way, he sets about seducing Sigrid in an attempt to basically ruin her. Mm-hmm. He sneaks around, he tries to talk to her to get as close as he can, and when she makes it very clear to him that she's not interested, he just comes back even harder. Then when Thorth warns him not to mess with his sister, he waits for the perfect moment when Thorth is out working on the ferry to sneak up on her while she's washing clothes. And then, as we covered numerous times already, he lays down, puts his head in her lap, and he he, he grabs her hands and puts them in his hair. Mm-hmm. John Orm is the creepiest worm that we've seen in a while. <laughs> so say what you want about Ozor's pursuit of Thor than the legality of that, which is questionable given that it was a blood vengeance thing. John Orm's the worst. He gots to go. <laughs> I I grant you, Orm is a worse human being. Yes. Uh, But uh, this saga teaches us, I think, the distinction between a person who is merely an obnoxious and unpleasant person to share an island with and a person who is actually guilty of crimes. Orm is horrific. Orm is problematic. And Orm's existence creates a feud that gets dozens of men killed. Because if he didn't behave the way he did, we'd have a problem, right? There There wouldn't be this problem. Uh, But Ozor is the man who insistently perpetrates this crime even against a man who has saved his life, he continues to attack again and again uh, in a uh, a behavior that 
his own relative. Remember, Aeth is related to Ozor. Aeth yeah. says is so bad that Ozor has forfeited some of his own compensation and all the compensation due to all of his men. And let's remember over two dozen men that he's gotten killed on his own side. Mm-hmm. And all of those men get no compensation because of Ozer's decisions. Not yeah, Ozer's. I mean, I, I heard your argument, but that doesn't change the fact that Ozor was pursuing blood vengeance and taking it very seriously. That is the stuff of the sagas. If we if we treated anyone who takes that job seriously uh, like an outlaw, then we wouldn't have many people to hang out with. I think the question is whether the saga treats it as a crime. And this saga does. It doesn't treat it as a crime. It treats it as the, the attacks, the ambushes are problematic, but they're understandable within the law. Mm-hmm. Whereas Orm's behavior, John, do you really want to, do you want to look the listeners in the eye after letting Orm get away? I don't think you know how listening works. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think ultimately your argument comes down to, but we don't like Orm. <laughs> I mean, if I have to be honest here, you don't actually have a lot of evidence. What you have is, but we don't like Orm. Well, the problem here is we don't have many people in the saga to work with. Um, So I'm choosing the the worst of the two, in my opinion. (laughs) And I think that the listening audience is with me. Uh, Oh, you've got the voice of the people. You're the Vox Populi in your pocket, do you? Uh, uh, I'm not sure I agree. I think Ozer is a really problematic guy. Um, I'm also, mm-hmm. by the way, we once before, we did have a tie in this category. Ah. And I would actually, in this situation, I would consider a tie. Uh, and I- that tie is, and that tie would be largely because I truly believe that Ozor is the better candidate for outlawry, but also I don't want Orm on the island anymore. <laughs> here's <laughs> he's the, the worst. Here, here's the thing that I was thinking. Um, I, I'll go with that. Um, but... I don't know that either of them have committed a crime that is worthy yet of full outlawry. We're thinking minor outlawry for both of them. I think so. Now mm, that fits. You know, you're, you're, you're picking fits. on me because I hate. I I do hate Orm. I think he's awful. Mm-hmm. He hasn't actually followed through fully on any of his no intentions yet. Mm-hmm. So you know, I thought about one crime that I thought we were going to get him on was um, uh, wooing another man's wife is a crime punishable by death in the in in Iceland. However, she's not married yet. She's not, yeah. And I, I had a look at this, and the Gragas does not actually say anything about betrothed women. Mm-hmm. It's married women. And I don't know, it, it is really, it's a matter of like cultural precept, right? Whether or not a betrothed woman would fit into that legal category of a man's wife. Yeah. Well, they're both problematic. Um, I think we're going to do that old uh, double up because I'm not letting Orm go. And you seem so married to Ozor for some reason. So well, some reason. <laughs> uh, so we're I, I'm fine with both this. out. Yep. Let's uh let's let's let these cousins go there go to hell in their own way. <laughs> All right. Oh, I think we'll send them to sea for three years in a worm eaten boat and hope that it sinks. I mean, the way it's going to go is they're going to get themselves killed out there. <laughs> you know, if I know them, undoubtedly, All they'll right. jump out of hiding a hundred yards from somebody they want to attack and <laughs> be mowed down. <laughs> All right. Well, bye bye, guys. Thing man. Okay, it is time for us to choose our thingman. Um, John, I believe mm-hmm. it's your turn to go first. Uh, a fact that I realized 
as I was finding myself getting somewhat attached to Thor as a, uh-huh. as a candidate. Yeah. Um, but let's uh, let's see what you do. You've got some good candidates right. to choose from this time. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a nice thing for you to say, but I think you and I both know. I don't need to drag this out. This is not one of those sagas with a crowd of horses in the race. Uh, I realize there are other viable candidates, and one in particular I think you'll probably end up taking. But this is just one of those cases where the Thingman Prize is what it says on the saga box. This uh, this saga's protagonist is the sort of fighting man who can survive something like seven ambushes against fearsome odds, and not only come out smiling, but cracking jokes all the way, and showing mercy to his enemies after the battle is over. He's an open-handed man who can give a richly decorated sword to his foster son, or throw a swinging wedding bash for his, uh, his sister and his former enemy. A loyal man whose sense of honor leads him to face down even a king who dares to act against his family. Now, Thor isn't a perfect saga hero. His poetry is too pedestrian for that. But he's a fearless warrior, a master builder, a witty fellow, a generous man, and he's my thingman. I not only look forward to hosting Thor Thor the Cinema Hall, I look forward to his ideas for remodeling the place. Welcome, (laughs) Thor the Menace. That's great. I forgot that he was a great builder, too. Damn it. <laughs> no, that's a good My one. hall's going to have all kinds of pretty new stuff. <laughs> it is. It is. Did, which one of us got ref the sly, though? Um, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I don't know Never either. asked a question like that before we have a chance we'll to We'll find out <laughs> when we look later on. <laughs> all right. So, well, Andy, uh, what are you going to take? Or who are you well, going to take? I mean, I, I've got a real problem on my hands. I mean, because there are still two good candidates for Thingman left, and I'm still not really sure which one to choose. I think there are three, but go ahead. Is Olaf one of yours? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to choose her because I did get a healer mm-hmm. before, and that's really... And she's also a troublemaker, if I'm being honest Well, with she's you. not the one I thought you were going to take, but she is on my list. No, I, 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 I acknowledge that she's an interesting candidate, but not compared to these other guys. So, mm-hmm. now on the one hand, I've got Skeggy of Midfjord, and on mm-hmm. the other, his son Aeth. Now, Skeggy is a typical kind of brutish saga chieftain who, who's made a reputation for himself fighting overseas, making a mm-hmm. name for himself before he got to Iceland, and he's most famous, and deservedly so, for breaking into the burial mound of King Hrolf Kraki and taking <laughs> the powerful sword Skolfnung, a fantastic mm-hmm. but temperamental weapon that we've been admiring since Cormac's saga. Yep. And he also tried to take the magical sword Lauvi from Bolvar Bjarki, but he couldn't get it from Bolvar. So a knock against him there. So, John, if I take Skeggy, I get Skolfnum. Mm-hmm. That's hard to pass up. Well, Skeggy. Yeah. I know, I, Skeggy's proven himself in battle more than once in the saga, and he's a good man to have at your side when things get difficult, I think. And it, it, honestly, I think this saga presents a fairly sympathetic picture of him if you read between the lines. He's also got a reputation, though, for being a bit pompous in other sagas. <laughs> yep. He's a strong-minded figure, uh, but he does seem to be a pretty decent leader at the same time, depending on which saga you read. He does take care of his men. He's a great fighter. He's a thoughtful father who respects and loves his son, despite the many, many times his son pushes back against him. Mm-hmm. Skeggy would make a great addition to my Thingman cohort. But then there's Aeth. Mm-hmm. Aeth is one of the more intelligent and versatile figures that we've encountered in recent sagas, John. He's a bold man who is willing to stand up to his father and even fight against him out of loyalty to his foster father. Mm-hmm. That's not so great for Skeggy, but it's a remarkable amount of bravery and conviction from Aeth. I think I can trust him in a fight. 
And then there's his legal training. Uh, we learned in our last saga that Aid was trained in law and genealogy, among other things, by Bard Snafflesass. That saga tells us that Aeth became the most learned man in the law and was later known as Law Aeth. Mm-hmm. And we see his legal acumen on display in Thor's saga where he arbitrates that case between his father and Thor. He's proven to be a rational, intelligent, thoughtful, and brave man. He's the kind of guy who can successfully break up fights and get people working together again. Plus, and I think this is this is the tipper, he most definitely inherits Skofnum. So the way I see it... <clears throat> The pick for Thingman got a whole lot easier with that. <laughs> Skeggy is the kind of guy who can become a problem. Aeth is the kind of guy who resolves problems, or better yet, oh. prevents them from ever happening. Mm-hmm. And he's got Skovnum. Yep. So I think, John, I'm very proud to welcome Aeth and his trusty sword Skovnum into my meat hall. Mm-hmm. You can take the seat of honor tonight, Aeth. We're glad to have you. Come on over. Now, speaking as uh, uh, the man whose thingmen are entirely responsible for training Aeth, since uh, uh, <laughs> Bars Nafalsas and, yes. uh, and Thor are now both my thingmen, I think you've chosen well. One of the problems that we're going to run into is as our thingmen get ready to fight each other, mm-hmm. Aeth is going to come rushing Aeth's in between. Step right in. We're, we're never going to get anything <laughs> done now. <laughs> Well, I think we'll get a few things done because remember, I also have uh, Greta Esmunderson, who's never stated <laughs> to start trouble. Uh, by the way, Andy, I did look it up while you were speaking, and uh, in fact, I also have Ref the Sly. Uh, so I have definitely got the the better looking hall at this point. Okay, well, when we when we, we can fight, talk about the better men, but I definitely yeah. have the better hall. Yeah, well, we might try burning your hall, but outside of that, <laughs> uh, I think your your fortress of grumpiness is going to be a little bit too strong for uh-huh. for our you, team. You could try. Yeah. I've I've probably got some kind of fire suppression system in the walls. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Final rating. So now that we've got all that out of the way, it's time for final ratings. Each of us has to come up with a score out of 10 for this saga and probably blather on for a few minutes before we do it. And I have to say, Mm -hmm. I'm more than a little curious about how you're going to score this one. And since you're going Mm. first, I don't have to wait any longer to find out. Andy, what have you got to say for yourself? Yeah. This is a hard one to judge, Mm -hmm. if I'm being honest, because there's so much to like about this saga. It's got interesting characters. It highlights some day-to-day aspects of life in medieval Iceland that we don't usually get to see, like stuff about the marketplace, doing laundry, bathing in the hot springs. Why don't more saga characters hang out in hot springs, John? Mm -hmm. It seems so obvious. It's one of the nicest things about Iceland. It's also got some really cool action sequences. Uh, It's got a compelling story, for the most part. And I appreciate the way that this author uses Thor and Skeggy to examine Icelandic versus Norwegian attitudes towards nobility. That's something that I really like about this saga. Because both Skeggy and Thor are problematic because of how they see themselves in terms of their status. Skeggy is an Icelandic chieftain who wields his power and influence like an Icelander, working through his connections, his family, his friends. He's shrewd and intelligent. He's anticipating problems and he's trying his best to avoid them. Whereas Thor, I think, is a bit of a Norwegian nobleman. (laughs) He expects to be treated a certain way by virtue of his status Mm -hmm. and his family name alone. And when he's not treated that way, well, that's when trouble starts. And that's not to say that Thor is a bad guy, but I think everything that Skeggy says about him in this saga and suspects of him, well, that all turns out to be true. Mm -hmm. And that's all very subtly written into the saga. 
it's just there beneath the surface for a careful reader to see. And I, I like that. It's it's well written in that regard. But then the ambushes start. And this saga gets so repetitive. I mean, I'll grant you, within those ambushes, there are some neat little set pieces. Um, some interesting exchanges that make them, you know, they work. But I think the saga itself loses something as its focus narrows to those endless ambushes of Thorth. Um, they overwhelm the saga, and I don't think that it really recovers. Hmm. And that's not to say that a saga can't be driven by a series of attacks, because most of them use that formula, uh, many to greater success than, than this hmm. one. So while I really, really enjoy this saga, I think it's a bit limited in scope for my tastes. It doesn't follow through on its swing, if you will. But it's still good. It just loses some points for lack of development. And so I want to give it a solid 6, but I'm going to give it a, a, a 6.5. Because of those the, the witticisms, I think it's just so you know well written. Uh, when when especially when you got character dialogue exchanges, um, it's got to be a six point five mm. for me. I will tell you, um, I'm not going to tell you my score yet, but uh, I also bumped it up uh, score for for the witty remarks. I I also yeah I can't I can't ignore that part. Well, I mean I I wrote a six initially, and then I was like, but yeah. but it's it yeah. there's some really good stuff yeah. in there. Uh, so what's to say? I, I feel like we've already snuck most of our analysis of the saga into the episodes. Uh, it's odd yeah. that we both felt compelled to do that repeatedly. We kept getting dragged back to it. Something about this saga yeah. brought out our critical selves every time we visited it. Uh, I don't know how you ended up on the side of genre standards and I ended up advocating for the quality of the text as its own work. Uh, I feel like we somehow Freaky Friday'd but only got each other's attitudes toward <laughs> late age saga production, which is a worst sequel ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even though I'm back in what passes for my right mind, I'm still inclined to read this saga, at least partly, as a literary riff on an established genre. Our author mm -hmm. isn't a hack. He gives us a number of clever lines. He knows how to draw a character in a few lines of dialogue. And his narrative uses a variety of conventional story elements to tell a bunch of variations on a key theme. And there is a theme here. We can certainly look at this and talk about how repetitive the story is. But the cycle of ambush, killing, recovery, repeat ad infinitum does serve the narrative in at least two ways. One, as I've said, is the text's consciousness about literary tradition. The author rings changes on his theme over and over, but each time one or two variables change from the previous iteration. I'm willing to speculate that we're not meant to feel that we're seeing the same ambush play out over and over, nor are we meant to see this as endlessly inventive. We are meant to build awareness or even frustration with the endlessness of the feud cycle. Are we seeing the rhythm of sudden acts of violence as a theme of saga writing that comments on the futility of those acts? Maybe. We definitely see that neither Ozor's violence nor Thor's prowess and luck are enough to end the perpetual motion of feud enmity. Even Aeth's final judgment and the settlement of the feud doesn't stop Thor and Skeggy from antagonizing each other or Sorley the Strong from challenging Thorth to yet another deathmatch over the memory of the long-buried Orm. But now we can trust that with uh, Thorth's repeated acts of goodwill toward his enemies. Sparing their lives, even bringing a couple of them to skilled healers to save lives he himself had nearly taken. And we see Skeggy and Thorth come to an understanding early in the saga through the economy of mutual social debt, and that's occurred when, uh, incurred when uh, Thorth becomes foster father to Skeggy's son, and Skeggy saves Thorth from a vengeful mob. 
And then we see reproachment, or at least detent. At the end, when Thor acknowledges his bad behavior over playing with Skeggy's sword, and Skeggy refuses to, to renew hostilities when Thor kills Sorely the Strong. There's a strong theme here, I think. Attention. On one side, we have bad actors like Sigurd Snake or Orm or Osur stirring up trouble through obnoxious or immoral action. Their discordant behavior creates and perpetuates the social pressure toward aggressive and violent action as a matter of honor. On the other side is the fragility of peace and the need for men to act as if peace is possible in order to call it into existence. The Thorths, who heal their enemies after a fight. The Skeggies, who restrain themselves when to act would endanger people they love. And Aeth, whose entire existence in this saga is a pay-on to peace. Of course, I may be making all this up. This may just be a mediocre saga of the later period. Uh, But even if I fully credit the author with constructing a deliberate set of overlapping motifs, this saga doesn't quite reach a position among the greats. It it wants narrative (laughs) tension, but the sameness of the ambushes begins to undermine that tension as we realize that Thor is never going to meet that one fight he can't survive. It uses some motifs effectively, but others are rote or half-hearted. Not everything is executed as well as it could be or should be, and as we said... The poetry's just so-so. But I recognize that the author knows what he's doing, and I really do enjoy his jokes. I'm going to give this a seven, and I'll keep thinking about this one after we move on from it. I will as well. I think you make a lot of great points, uh, much more articulately than I did. Um, But you always come to these more prepared than I do. That's just kind of how we do these things. Well, you know me, nothing but free time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But... I would say one one argument. You're going to argue with my final whole, rating? No, no. Just I, I think we're, we're in discussion period. <laughs> so you make a great point about the theme. And I, I, I think the theme is fairly uh, – that theme is fairly obvious. Um, and I like it. It's a theme that you know I wanted to write um, a dissertation about back when I was uh, mm-hmm. a graduate student. This idea about the endlessness of the feud cycle, the, the role uh, – how you avoid that kind of thing. But – Lots of works of literature tackle that theme, and some of them do it really, really well. Beowulf is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. That's a great work of literature that tackles the theme of the futility of the feud cycle and the the destruction, the ultimate destruction uh, that it, it, it leads to. This one is playing with the same theme, um, but I think more clumsily. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. And you ultimately came down. I thought you were building up towards a, a, a great high score. Uh, seven seven's very respectable. I feel like we often do this. At that moment, you were building. You sound yeah. very negative and then go fairly high. I always sound positive and then lowball it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I, although I did, I did start start strong this time and then mm-hmm. go go negative. Um, but uh, it's it's interesting. It's very very interesting. We we ultimately came down. Uh, with I think a very similar score, a very similar feeling about mm-hmm. the saga that it it's it's right there. It's on the cusp of being great. Yeah, it's just not quite. It's not quite there. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Good fun, well, Thord Menace. Uh, we we hadn't read. I hadn't read it before. Um, mm-hmm. but this is one that I'm really glad we did this podcast yep. for because I don't know whether I would have necessarily picked this one. This up. is exactly the kind of saga that you know I'm I I want us to uncover. Right, that this is a saga yep. that has not been available in an English translation. Um, it's it's now available, but in a very expensive translation. 
Uh, and I really hope some people, uh, some of you listening, uh, choose to seek this one out. It's a lot of fun to read and it's, well, uh, you know, it's good stuff. The problem is it's not really that widely available. Um, if you have a yeah. university library nearby, either, either they may have this set or they may be able to um, seek it through interlibrary loan. And it's, it's, yeah. it's worth a read. It is. Well, good. Uh, thank you, Thord Menace, for being written. Thank you to the author for uh, putting the time in. And thank you all. Thank you, listeners, for uh, putting up with our, our lengthy uh, survey of the text. Um, that brings us to the end of our four-episode sprint through this saga. Um, I hope you've no, uh, the, or, the saga of Thord Menace. Yeah, not the saga of Thord Menace. The saga of Thord Troublemaker. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thord I, Scarecrow? I hope, probably not. Thord Brass Balls. We hope that you've enjoyed this as much as we have. This was a surprising saga in a lot of ways. As I said, um, not what we expected. It was exactly what I expected. Sure it was. So before we sign off, we should give a preview of what's coming up. Yes, yes. Well, uh, since we like a little palate cleanser around here after a saga, uh, we'll be back in a week or two, probably more like two, with a thouter. We have the tale of Gisel Alugason. Um, it's a really fun one. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Um, it's available in the Complete Saga translations. Uh, if you want to look for that, uh, it's not available anywhere else that I'm aware of. Nice. So sorry yeah. about Taunt that. Taunt them with the expensive translation collection. Uh, yeah. And after that, if you just told everybody it's not available anywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, after that, we uh, we hope to be posting the first in our promised series of saga briefs, talking with scholars in the field about the connections between medieval studies, especially Northern European studies, and the misappropriations of history by modern extremist groups and nationalist groups. Yes, and then it'll be time for our next saga, um, which we had initially planned to do before this one, uh, but what was it? I don't even remember what the I saga was. I wrote it down was. somewhere. Hang on. Wait. Oh, it was, uh, it was a false bread Yes, saga. yes, that was it. Uh, false bread. Uh, a pretty big one. Uh, one of the middleweight sagas yeah. and one that's pretty widely read. There might even be mm-hmm. more than one translation of it available. Ooh, dare to dream, everyone. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, if you want to share your thoughts on the saga or any of our judgments, please feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Saga Thing Pod, or on Facebook slash Instagram, where we, are, where we are Saga Thing Podcast. You can also reach us via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or on our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can send us a fax. But make sure you send it to 2004, which is probably the last time either of us had regular access to a fax machine. So I guess time machine, then fax. Or fax, then time machine. What about a, a hot tub time machine? Or possibly that. Your fax will get wet. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Oh, man. That does it for us. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Bye for now.